just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It's Tuesday, another busy week. A lot of stuff happening, a lot of stuff that we're going to get to here. Now, one of the things I'm not talking about today, so I'm going to bring it up now, is Vladimir Putin, Russia, and the Ukraine war. We've got so much going on in our politics and our government. I don't give it enough attention, and I understand that. I feel like we've got to fix what we've got at home before we can worry about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. But that is that is a horrific situation. And Vladimir Putin finds himself in almost the identical situation that Donald Trump is in. He's wrong. He's being exposed. He's cornered. And he's really got nowhere to go. Now, when you get this type of person, a narcissist, uh, authoritarian, an autocrat, or whatever you want to call them, when they get cornered like this, they get nervous because they use their tactics and their tactics don't work. Vladimir Putin's trying to use his main tactic of bullying. He knows he's weak because he's losing the Ukrainian war. He knows he's weak because the people of Russia are looking sideways at him. They're all struggling because of the sanctions and wondering why the fuck we're in Ukraine and why you're now conscripting 300,000 plus people, our people, putting them in a war zone for no good fucking reason. So Vladimir Putin's hanging by a thread in Russia, but still nothing has been done. As I've said, Now he's claiming uh, or threatening nuclear war because that's essentially all he's got at this point. His, His army, his military isn't as powerful as everybody thought. Ukraine has proved that. But this is what bullies do. They never admit they're wrong. They never step back. They just double down and try to bully harder in hopes that somebody will give up. That's their whole strategy in life, getting people to roll over and they go over the top of them. Well, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump are finding themselves in a unique and unfamiliar situation. People aren't backing down. They're stepping forward or forward and shoving it down the throat. And Vladimir Putin doesn't like this. Now, Donald Trump is weak. He's got no power. He's got no position. Vladimir Putin, on the other hand, is the leader of Russia And uh, he's fairly close to nuclear weapons. And when he doubles down and tries to bully, that's what comes up. He's threatening nuclear war because he knows this will make people fearful, and it should. So he's threatening this because he's got nothing else going. Everything is a loser for him. And he's threatening nuclear war. Now, on the other side of things, former General Petraeus explained that if Vladimir Putin attempted using a nuclear weapon in Ukraine or elsewhere, that the entirety of NATO would pretty much destroy a ton of Russian targets. And that's comforting to know that, but at the same time, you got to worry. When we start getting nuclear warheads bouncing around, this isn't good for anybody. 
We might be able to destroy Russia, but there's going to be a lot of shit taken out in America, in Ukraine. And the whole point is the idea of nuclear war is just crazy and nobody should or want to do it. But Vladimir Putin, who probably doesn't want to do it, is going to keep threatening it. And this puts everybody on edge, of course. Now, the question is, what does the U.S. do? What does Ukraine do? Other than fighting these guys or going head-to-head or trying to hit them with nuclear weapons before they hit us. But, as I say, once it starts, it's a chain reaction. Then everybody's fucking involved. That's not a good answer. That's not a good answer. And as I've said before, the only way to end this thing with Russia is if somebody in Russia, whether it be the military, the government, or just the people on the street, get Vladimir Putin out of his position, take him out of power, then things will finally settle down. And I'm convinced that's going to happen. But, you know, when we sit and watch Vladimir Putin or all the shit going on in our country with the investigations and stuff, It gets so frustrating because you never seem to get a resolution. We want the indictments, haven't seen the indictments yet. We want somebody to take Vladimir Putin out and uh, bring this world back to some sense of safety. But nobody's done it as yet. And people have explained, well, it takes a while to do it. Well, you know, when we're talking about nuclear war, you might want to put a wiggle on that motherfucker and get it done. And as I sit and watch all these things and all these people committing crimes and doing the things they're doing or doing what Vladimir Putin is doing, it reminded me of a quote I heard on television in the 80s. It's the kind of attitude I'm in right now. Because at some point you get tired of just watching this and seeing no resolution to it. But the quote came from... The, the WWE wrestling program, if you watched it back in the 80s. And there was a tag team called the Road Warriors. There was Hawk and Animal. Remember those two guys? Yeah, I remember one particular instance when they were talking to the mean gene or whoever the fuck they were talking to. And Animal stood up and he said, Look, there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's weasels. And weasel slappers. (laughs) I love that quote. It cut it down to simple terms. You're a weasel. I'm slapping the fuck out of you. It's over. And sometimes I think, I wish we could do that, whether it be with our own politicians who deserve to be slapped because they certainly are weasels, or Vladimir Putin, who is a bigger kind of weasel, who needs to have the taste slapped out of his mouth. But obviously you can't do that. I'm a guy, so I'm looking for the short answer to this, and that wouldn't be the bright answer, so that's not going to happen. But I wanted to tell you a quick story. I bring up the Road Warriors, um, and uh, and whether you knew them, knew about them or not, you can always Google them. Uh, But the animal was a gentleman by the name of Joe Laronitis, who after he got done wrestling was an executive uh, with the WWE. He ultimately recently died at a very young age, which is sad. But I actually knew Joe Laronitis, not very well. I mean, if prior to him dying, if he saw me in the street, he wouldn't know who I, who I was. But for a short period of time, I kind of knew him. And the reason I knew him uh, was when he was in college, he was playing football at Moorhead State in North Dakota. 
Now, the only reason I would have met him is because my best friend was also playing football at Moorhead State. So this is the late 70s, early 80s, and of course we would drive up to Moorhead State to see our buddy play football and be drinking and be lights out drunk all the time when we were there. But we would often stay with my friend in his apartment, and one of his his uh, roommates was this Joe Laronitis, this animal from the Legion of Doom or the Road Warriors. And actually, he was a very nice guy. Uh, he was a very nice guy, decent guy. And and the nice thing about it is when you went out to the bars in Moorhead and you weren't from Moorhead, you would get people kind of fucking with you. Now, back in those days, me and my buddies, we got in our share of tussles. We weren't averse to, uh, our, uh, to, to getting in a fight now and again. Not a lot. I mean, we weren't crazy fuckers. But if you messed with us, <laughs> we, we, we would entertain that possibility. Those were my younger, crazier days. And, and like I always told my kids, one of the reasons I quit drinking is because in those days, <laughs> when I drank, I believed I not only was the sexiest man alive, but the toughest man alive. And that didn't bode well always. And when I got older, closer to 30, uh, that just wasn't cute anymore. But we'd go out to the bars and stuff, and occasionally somebody would walk up to us and give us some shit. And then Joe Laronitis, animal, would walk over and say, you fucking with my friends? And that would calm it down pretty quick. So it was nice. It was nice. So I knew him a little bit, not a lot. Not in recent years anyway. But it was funny. One time... Um, probably shortly after they got out of college, uh, my wife, who was my fiance at the time, uh, were invited to a Super Bowl party with this friend of mine. And of course, Joe Laronitis was there. And it was nice to see everybody and all this stuff. Well, nobody really knew my wife. Certainly, Joe Laronitis didn't know my fiance, actually, at the time. And uh, he's walking around. He's a big shot. He's not a pro wrestler yet. Um, and he sees my wife, and he goes start talking to her. I see, keep saying wife. Well, she ended up being my wife, my fiance at the time. And he's talking to her, and then he's kind of hitting on her. And my fiance, my wife, doesn't really know what to do with. It. He's a big guy, um, and 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 she's not somebody that's going to be loud and audacious. So she's just kind of listening, and she says, "Well, you you know, I'm married." I'm going to be married. And he goes, really? And she shows him the engagement ring. He says, who are you marrying? He says, well, Mike. He goes, oh, Jesus Christ, I'm sorry. I am very sorry. I didn't mean to do that because he was a respectful guy. I mean, he could have twisted me up in a pretzel if he wanted to, but he wasn't going to do that. So he let her alone. And uh, later on, the guilt got to him. And he came over to me and said, Mike, I got to tell you, and I'm sorry, I hit on your, your fiancé. Didn't mean to do it. And so we're in a crowd, and I like to fuck around, and I knew him well enough at the time. I said, you did what? You tried to hit on my fiancé? You motherfucker, I will kick your ass. And everybody's watching me do this, and he's just standing there, and he doesn't know how to take it. And, and as I keep going, uh, then he starts laughing. Because he knows I'm not going to fucking do anything. And I was just fucking with him. And uh, we shake hands and he says, <laughs> he says, 
you got a great girl there. Good luck with that. <laughs> and he looks at my fiance and he goes, I don't even know what the fuck to tell you. Good luck. <laughs> anyway, he passed away much too young. You know, for the last 30 years, I haven't known him. I didn't talk to him. We're not buddies or anything like that. But the whole, there's only two kind of people, weasels and weasel slappers. I love how that breaks down to, you did something wrong, now I'm going to knock your fucking block off. Some days I feel like that. And I wish we as a country could do that, either to Vladimir Putin or these fuckers that are trying to overthrow this country. Anyhow. Enough of the story time. Let's get to the emails. This one comes from Roy. You may remember Roy. He was on the show. Actually, Roy's wife was on the show as well. And he sends this note. So what has happened with Lindsey Graham's situation with him being almost forced to testify in Georgia? That has disappeared as of late. Your thoughts, Roy? Well, that's a good question. And a question I can't fully answer, but I can tell you what I know. Um, Lindsey Graham is going to have to testify. He's done everything he could to get out of it. Um, he was supposed to appear late August, August 23rd or something like that. Then he appealed it. And then around September 2nd or 3rd, they said, nope, you're not going to get the appeal. You're not winning. You're going to have to testify. They did give him some consolation that they could only question him about certain things, but he was going to have to testify. Now, the problem uh, these days is there's so many big stories that come out. Stories like this get lost, and you don't know what's going on. And honestly, I don't know what's going on. The last word on it is that he has to testify. The only thing we don't know is when he's going to be scheduled to testify. There's probably some negotiations going on with that as well. So we'll see what happens. But ultimately, ultimately, Roy... um, Lindsey Graham will have to testify. What he'll say, will he plead the fifth? I don't fucking know, but he will have to testify, hopefully sooner than later. All right, this next one comes from a woman by the name of V. And she says, hi, Mike. Yesterday, the first part of your podcast focused on the Supreme Court. And I got to tell you, I'm terrified of what's to come. I was kind of wishing they'd take the rest of the year off and not hear any more cases and spare us more damage for a little while. I hope we hold the House and get more senators elected so Joe Biden and Congress can do something about this court. Another damage they've done is to the Miranda rights, where law enforcement are no longer required to read us our rights if we are arrested. This might not affect our generation because we know about those rights, but future generations won't. And we don't need more people going to jail because they didn't realize they had certain rights to protect them. Our prison system is broken, privatized, and for-profit prisons have damaged this country. They don't rehabilitate people, but most of the time break people. Republicans want to also privatize public education and make it for profit to make millionaires and billionaires even richer at the cost of our youth and future of this country. We have so many issues we need to deal with in this country, and we don't need the crazies taking us back and preventing us from progress. I hope people know what's at stake and vote for Democrats because they are the only ones working for us right now. 
And V, you're absolutely right. As I've said many times, the future of this country really, really depends on this midterm thing. We somehow have to take down the uh, the fire of the Republican Party. If they get a second chance here, they're still burning up and still want to take down the Democrats, whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing. So the midterms are the key. If we can hold the House, expand the Senate, and have Joe Biden in office, for the next two years we can do some serious things. Now, I'm a glass-half-full guy. I believe that's what's going to happen. And I, and I have a good feeling about it. I do have feelings about things as far as what's going to happen. If I walk into a room, I can tell if it's a negative vibe or a positive vibe. And what's going on, is, is as problematic as it is, um, I really feel that it's going to go the right way. Now, understand, once we go the right way, we get the House, we get the Senate, we have Joe Biden and the two years um, coming up. It's all going to take some time. I think a lot of people thought the moment Joe Biden was going to come into office that everything would change. Now, a lot did change, but not enough. Not everything changed. And the same thing will be for this midterms. We'll get the change. We'll start to see more action. And hopefully the Democrats will have some urgency, knowing that they have two years free and clear to do what they need to do. All the problems that the Republicans have created can be fixed. They can be reversed, and I think that's will hap- That's what will happen. Now, I've said before, there's a few things you have to do as soon as you get past the midterms and you have the power to do it. Codify Roe v. Wade, number one job, number one job. Then deal with the voting rights issue and the gerrymandering and stuff. you got to set that fucking shit straight. Get it done. Don't assume it's going to go well. This is what we did with Roe v. Wade. We could have codified it. We didn't, and here we are. So we deal with the voting rights. We deal with gun rights right away, too, and really take a strong hand at this because if we let it ride, if we let it ride, it'll never get done. So I'm hoping the Democrats, once they have the power to do it, they will understand the need for urgency. They won't sit back on their laurels. And that's my only really great concern about the Democrats. I want them to have all the power because you're right. They're the only ones that are apparently doing anything for the people of this country and the country itself. However, they are politicians. And I don't trust politicians. My greatest fear is they get the power and then they say, well, we can relax now because we got the power. We don't have to beat the Republicans for two years. We got a free ride. So there's no rush doing this. Now, I'm not sure that they would do that, but I know politicians are capable of it. Remember, they could have codified Roe v. Wade back with Obama and they didn't do it because they had other things they wanted to worry about. Hopefully they've learned a lesson. And when they get power from 22 to 24, they make the most of it. They make hay while the sun shines because they are going to need to take advantage of that situation when it occurs. And I say when because I don't go into anything assuming I'm going to lose. I assume we're going to win. People will talk about the destruction of this country and how it's going down the tubes and how it will go badly. 
But I have confidence in what's going to happen with this country, and the tide will turn and we'll get back on track. And the reason I have that opinion of what's going on in this country is the very same reason I personally don't worry about shit. I've told you this before. A lot of people I know stress out. I never stress out. I assume the best. And more than likely, I will get the best. And people will say, how can you do that? And it's very simple. The same for me is the same for the country. I'm 62 years old. I've gone through every trial, tribulation, tragedy, and whatever. I've gone through things that thought I thought would take me down and put me out forever. But here I sit, 62 years old, doing a podcast, doing what the fuck I want. Same can be said for the country. What are we, two, maybe not quite 250 years old, 240 years, and we've gone through some serious shit. I know you think these years have been really, really bad, but we went through some bad shit in the 60s, too. And somehow, we always came out the other side. And I have to believe that will be the case here this time. All right, the uh, next uh, email is from Bill. He says, love your podcast and TikToks. Keep it up. I was wondering where Donnie Fuckface Jr. has been. Since the New York State lawsuit, I haven't heard from that little bitch. Any ideas, Bill? Yeah, I'm thinking with Donnie Jr., he's really seeing the possible implications for him. I mean, he's part of the company. The uh, civil lawsuit that Letitia James is mounting not only could bankrupt him, but put him out of business or ever being in business in New York again. And then you throw in the fact that she's uh, referring um, criminal action to the Southern District of New York and uh, the IRS. And, of course, we have the Manhattan District that will probably pick up the mantle against Donald Trump and the people in the company as well. I think he's really realizing that he's in some deep shit. Now, that doesn't mean he would shut up on his own accord. I think he's probably got lawyers saying, you know, you're vacant at fucking worse. Just shut the fuck up. I don't know that that's true, but I would have to assume that to be the case because Donald Trump is not somebody who would necessarily shut up on his own accord. This guy's got a drug problem, he's got a mouth problem, and he's got an intellect problem. He's not a smart man. So I would think Donald Trump Jr. knows he's in line to get taken down, and he's probably shitting his pants, and his lawyers are telling him, shut the fuck up. You're just making it worse. All right, this next one comes from Fred. And Fred starts out the email by saying, Hello, Grandpa Poopy Butt. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know the reference there, I'd, I'd talked about my granddaughter. And uh, we have a lot of fun running around and stuff. And she likes it when I chase her. And when I'm not paying attention. And one, one day I wasn't paying attention and she wanted me to chase her. She'd run a little bit and I wouldn't do anything. She'd run a little bit and wouldn't do anything. So now she wanted to entice me to run or motivate me to run. And let me tell you, I'm not much of a fucking runner these days, but with her, I do run. One day she's up ahead of me and she looks back at me very slyly and she says, Grandpa Poopy Butt? with the intention of getting me to run after her. By this time, I know what she's doing, so I chase her. I um, 
I catch her and she's laughing and screaming and yelling. And I, I just love that whole interaction. I'll do whatever she wants me to do. But it's funny, after I spend an hour or two running around with her, I am so fucking tired. I usually don't get tired in the middle of the day, but when I do that with her, I'm fucking out. I'm out. I'm glad I don't have kids 24-7 because I could not handle it. Anyway, Fred goes on. He says, I was listening to your podcast as usual this morning, and for some reason the beginning part with the Trumplefux always playing the victim stood out to me. I don't know why, it just did. Little did I know it was foreshadowing. During lunchtime, I thought I'd channel my inner Ed and see what the Trumplicans are complaining about now on Twitter. I happened across the Republican congressional candidate for my district who was spewing about how qualified, philanthropic, and just how great he is and so much more qualified than any other House rep is. I do a little digging and I find out that the Trumplican candidate has two bankruptcies, three foreclosures in the last 10 years. Hmm. I did what any rational boomer would do, even as a Gen Xer, and I asked him about it. Well, this triggered him. He accused me of spewing lies and that if I didn't stop, he'd sue me. Well, of course he did. However, after he said he was going to sue me, he said I should call him so I could see his side. Gladly. Basically, it was like talking to Brian Wallenberg. (laughs) Another nice reference. He was the Trump humper that I talked to on a previous podcast. He didn't like when I presenting him with facts. I should have recorded it because it was an hour-long conversation and could have been a podcast. Yes, Fred, you should have recorded it, and I would have definitely put it on this podcast. So if you do it again, record that shit. In any event, it gave me the itch to get back on the show with you and hopefully Ed too. I know you guys are both traveling later this week, so hopefully we can work out a time Keep it up, Fred. Yeah, I am traveling this week. I'm going to Las Vegas on Wednesday. Not sure if I'm excited about it. I like spending time with my brother and my nephew. uh, And it's, you know, it's a getaway and all that stuff. But I'm not a big fan of Vegas. I've been there many times. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm not a huge gambler. But we're going to do that. We'll be gone Wednesday to Friday. I'll have my stuff with me. So I still do the podcast. Uh, The next week I'm wide open, Fred. So if you want to do it the following week, We can certainly do that. Uh, The week after that, though, I'm going to be gone, too. My wife and I are going to Vermont. Vermont. This is something my wife always wanted to do. And uh, I said, I'm in, man. I'm in. So, Fred, let's let's see if we can do something next week. And I'll get Ed set up, and I'll get me set up, and I'll get you set up, and we'll do this whole fucking thing again. All right. Let's... uh, talk about uh, what's going on in the news. And I'm just going to preface this because we'll get more into it after the break. But we have a historic case going on, an an historic trial. And that is the Oath Keepers who are um, on trial for seditious conspiracy. That is a serious fucking crime. That's a very serious crime. And it's an important case for this country, too. Now, of course, uh, um, Elmer Stewart Rhodes is the leader of the Oath Keepers, and he's on trial. Now, 
<laughs> Elmer's such a fucking dipshit. This guy's a leader of the Oath Keepers, and he's a tough guy, militia guy, infantry guy. Yeah, he's a tough guy. But he's basically a cosplayer for a military guy. He's not a military guy. And I think the funniest thing about <clears throat> Elmer Stewart Rhodes is, first, he never uses Elmer. Mom and Dad gave him that name, but he doesn't use it because he makes him sound weak, I think. I think that's what he believes. So he goes with Stuart Rhodes. But I'm calling him Elmer. That's his fucking given name. So he's fucking Elmer to me. But he kind of let out his 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 defense in this case. And his defense is that it's not his fault. He should not be convicted of this because he was just anticipating orders from the president of the United States, Donald Trump. <laughs> so... Somehow you anticipated what Donald Trump is going to tell you, and that should get you out of this court case. Come on, dipshit. That's not how it fucking works. And besides, even if Donald Trump did dictate some directives to you about overthrowing the government, hey, guess what? It's still fucking illegal, you dumb fuck. Well, the court case started today. And uh, we had opening statements, and, and we'll talk more about that in the uh, the next segment. We'll be talking about a lot of shit as well. So hold on. We'll take a quick break, and we will be right back. Okay, so five alleged members of a far-right militia, including its leader, Elmer Stewart Rhodes, are on trial in Washington, D.C.'s federal courthouse. They have pleaded not guilty to the charges of seditious conspiracy, a charge rarely brought by the Justice Department and other charges. And this is a serious charge. I think this carries a maximum penalty of 20 years. So these brothers are going to do some time because they most certainly did commit seditious conspiracy. The other thing it's going to do is it's going to open up all those people who may have conspired with these fucks. If these guys get convicted of conspiracy, seditious conspiracy, they have to have co-conspirators. And those could be people that are sitting members of Congress, people who were in the White House, people that were part of the administration, Jenny Thomas. It could be any number of people. So if these guys get convicted... That's going to foreshadow what's going to happen to these other motherfuckers, and they are nervous about it. The Justice Department's opening statement featured messages and other communications among the defendants that prosecutors say show the Oath Keepers' unlawful plotting to disrupt Congress's certification of President Joe Biden's electoral win. As the prosecutors sought to use the words of the defendants against them, they also played video capturing the Oath Keepers' actions in the Capitol, and display maps and charts to help the jury along. Each juror has their own screen to see the evidence. And let me explain something to you. These attorneys that are with the Department of Justice, they're good fucking attorneys. And they have studied this, they've investigated it, and they're going to lay it out in very simple terms for these jurors. But the fact of the matter is the evidence is so blatant that they're not going to have much trouble. They said out loud and in writing what they planned to do, Jeffrey Nessler, an assistant U.S. attorney, told the jury. When the opportunity finally presented itself, they sprang into action. 
Now, a lawyer for Rhodes, the first defense attorney to deliver an opening statement, told the jurors that they will see evidence that will show that the defendants had no part in the bulk of the violence that occurred on January 6th. They had no part. Well, I mean, one of the things they might want to say, well, they didn't fight that much. They didn't spray that much bear spray. But it really doesn't matter if they were a major part of it or a small part of the actual action. Because if they were part of the planning, they're just as guilty. Attorney Phil Lindner said, You may not like what you see and hear our defendants did, but the evidence will show they didn't do anything illegal today. So what this what this attorney for for the for the oath keepers is saying, yeah, they're naughty boys, but they didn't do anything illegal. Yeah, we beg to differ, and so does the Justice Department. The Justice Department began its opening statement with the accusation that the defendants sought to stop by any means necessary the lawful transfer of presidential power, including taking up arms against the United States governor government. Nestler started with a reference to the core democratic custom of the routine transfer of power, which Nestler said stretched back to the time of George Washington. Now, these defendants tried to change that history, which is true. They concocted a plan for armed rebellion to shatter a bedrock of American democracy. I told you they were good. The defendants got their opportunity two weeks before the inauguration, Nessler said. If Congress could not meet it, could not declare the winner of the election. They knew if they stopped this certification, they could at least delay what was going on. And that was their goal, to stop by at any means necessary the lawful transfer of power, including taking up arms against the United States government. That's some pretty serious shit and sounds exactly like what they were doing. Now, during the Justice Department's opening, the jury was presented with video footage, maps, and other visual, audiovisual tools that prosecutors used to give an overview of the case. Nestler's presentation included iPhone footage from the attack that the prosecutors used to identify the defendants and other alleged co-conspirators. So here's the deal. They can say they're not guilty, but we got video footage with those ugly faces in the fucking footage. When, video, when the video showing defendant Kelly Meggs was presented, Nestler noted that the patch he wore, which said, according to Nestler, I don't believe in anything, and I'm just here for the violence. But they didn't do anything illegal. As the video clips played, the jury also saw a map of the Capitol that Nestler used to situate the action that was recorded by the video. Nestler also had a physical chart perched on an easel in the courtroom listing out the alleged co-conspirators. Jurors were also presented with the messages that the defendants allegedly sent in the weeks after the election, including their calls for a violent response to former President Donald Trump's loss. It's easy to chat there. The real question is, who's willing to die, Meggs wrote in one message sown by the prosecutor. So that message itself, you know, we were really dangerous. We were just talking shit. No, you said what you said and you did what you did. And that amounts to seditious conspiracy. 
The DOJ also showed a video and photographs of the Oath Keepers participating in tactical training sessions. A map of the Washington Mall showing the site of the rally that preceded the Capitol attack and its distance from the Capitol. Nestler ticked through communications, including one walkie-talkie app, Zello, between the defendants that allegedly occurred that day. Nestler used the opening arguments to also preview some of the Justice Department will respond to defenses the Oath Keepers' attorneys are expected to put forward. It went on to say, there is evidence that you will hear that they had more than one reason to be here in D.C. in addition to attacking Congress, the prosecutor said. The defendants may have been planning to attend the rally near the White House earlier in the day, Nestler noted, but so did thousands of others. Nestler also referenced uh, to potential attempts by the defense to argue that Oath Keepers were preparing to come to D.C. to serve as security, noting that the defendants weren't licensed, trained, or even paid to do security work. Even being bad security guards isn't itself illegal, Nestler said. However, according to the prosecutor, the goal they were actually preparing for was unlawful. Now, additionally, Nestler alluded to the belief that Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act. You heard a lot of talk about that prior to and during that day. Is he going to invoke the Insurrection Act, which would have changed everything? We would have had uh, um, uh, martial law, and that would have been a fucking mess. The defense has signaled it plans to argue that the Oath Keepers were preparing to respond to such an invocation. So they were there just in case the president invoked the Insurrection Act. And you know what? He probably would have if he thought he could get away with it. President Trump did not invoke the Insurrection Act. Nestler said these defendants needed to take matters into their own hands. They needed to activate the plan they had agreed on. These are armchair fucking army men, and they thought they were tough. The Justice Department also emphasized the backgrounds of some of the defendants and how that it fit into the department's theory of the case. Rhodes, as Nestler repeatedly noted, is a graduate of Yale Law School. He knew to be careful with his words and told his co-conspirators to be careful with theirs. Thomas Caldwell, another defendant, served in the military, Nestler said, based on that uh, water experience, he planned to use boats to get across the Potomac. Yeah, we were just there for security, but let's have some boats. We'll cross the Potomac and mount another attack. Now, the Justice Department detailed the preparations the Oath Keepers allegedly undertook before January 6th, as well as what they're accusing the defendants of doing during the Capitol breach. In December 2020, Rhodes told others that January 6th presented a hard constitutional deadline, according to the prosecutors, and they would need to do it ourselves if Trump didn't stop the certification of the election. Now, Trump tried by trying to get uh, Mike Pence to do it. But, of course, Mike Pence wouldn't do it. And even if he wanted to do it, he couldn't have done it constitutionally. With time as their options dwindled and it became more and more likely that power would be transferred, Nestler said Monday, these defendants became more and more desperate and more and more focused on the date that Rhodes referred to 
as a constitutional deadline. So they were expecting Donald Trump to do something, and he didn't. Oh, big surprise. So they decided, well, we're all dressed up and ready to party. We might as well party. According to Nestler, the group organized a caravan of Florida members to drive up to Washington for January 6th and made preparations for where the organization could store firearms in Virginia, just outside D.C. Some members of the group, according to the prosecutors, brought weapons into D.C. that day, including chemical spray, thick pieces of wood, dressed in paramilitary gear. We saw it. We saw it all on the video. But that's the one thing that we heard about that people aren't talking about. They had guns stored. Now they say nobody had guns there. Well, people did have guns there. Not as many as could have had guns, but there were some guns there. But they did have a stockpile of guns a short distance away, and they were presuming a second attack. Now, had these people had guns, there would have been more people dead because these guys were just aching to pull the trigger on somebody, especially a Democratic politician like, say, Nancy Pelosi. Now, Nestler's opening described the stack formations that the defendants allegedly used to enter the Capitol. He played a video of defendant Jessica Watkins, who allegedly led the first group pushing against a crowd outside the House chamber, shouting, push, 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 get in there. They can't hold us. The second group positioned themselves outside of a suite of offices belonging to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Nestler said. Nestler said that Meggs had a keen interest in Speaker Pelosi and later told associates that we looked for her. But nothing illegal here. Nothing at all illegal. We were just security. And then Lauren Boebert goes on to Twitter and announces where Nancy Pelosi is. You see that? That's where the conspiracy comes in. Now, these sitting members of Congress say, oh, we had nothing to do with it. Well, you guys were interacting on Twitter and maybe even with phone calls. We know that one phone call came out of Washington, uh, the White House to, uh, um, to uh, an insurrectionist. Now, this insurrectionist was nobody. Uh, it was only nine seconds, so there probably was little, if any, conversation. So maybe maybe it was uh, uh, announcing something, uh, a clue, or, or what am I trying to say? Uh, trying to tell them something without actually talking. And it's funny, within a short time after that, the National Guard came out. Finally, after three and a half hours or thereabouts, they're coming out. So is that a signal to these people that get ready, the National Guard's coming, you guys are pussies and you guys are chickens, so you might want to bail out of there. And that's exactly what they did. Now, at first, the defendants saw the breach as a success. They got in the building. They thought, we're hotshots. You saw the video. They said, we're in. We're taking it over. We're the baddest motherfuckers alive. He was describing them as elated, boastful, and proud. You saw it on the videos. But according to the DOJ's account, the defendants quickly realized they were in legal jeopardy and instructed one another to flee town, delete messages, and keep quiet. And Stuart Rhodes, being the consummate infantryman, said, Let me put this in infantry speak for you. Shut the fuck up! Now, if you did nothing illegal, 
why now are you worried about ramifications that would be legal? You see, that's a little contradictory, and that's where they're going to get in fucking trouble. So this court case is probably going to go into November. It'll be interesting to see how it happens, but I'm guessing these insurrectionists don't have the best lawyers, and the DOJ does have the best lawyers. They have video evidence, audio evidence. They have all the evidence they need. What the DOJ is suggesting they did, they fucking actually did. So expect these people to get convicted. It'll be interesting to see if any other evidence comes out in the court case. We know the January 6th committee is going to come out with other people involved in this. Like I say, potentially sitting members of Congress, people in the White House, people in the administration, Jenny Thomas. Those names will all come out in the January 6th hearing. And uh, they, of course, will be referred to the DOJ. But in this particular trial, those names could could come out, too. They're going to put them on the stand, these insurrectionists, and they're going to have to answer correctly and truthfully. Otherwise, they're in even more trouble. These people are shitting their pants right now. Things are coming to a head, and it's not looking good for Republicans in general, and certainly not these seditious conspirators. Because if they get them on this, there's going to be a lot of other people, more important people, more people with names that you recognize that will also be charged with seditious conspiracy. All right. From one dumb shit to another dumb shit. The U.S. Supreme Court today or yesterday, actually, declined to intervene Monday in a defamation lawsuit against MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell filed by Dominion Voting Systems. Lindell had asked the high court to consider his appeal of a federal judge's August 2021 rejection of a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. So just so you know what happened, Uh, When Dominion filed this lawsuit of $1.6 billion that will end anything that Mike Lindell is doing, it'll bankrupt his company, it'll bankrupt him, and he'll still still owe, owe hundreds of millions of dollars. He's not worth that much. After that, what he did is he thought he was going to go on the offensive, be the tough guy. So he then in turn sued Dominion for defamation of character, for a ridiculous amount of money. The judge said, yeah, nah, that doesn't make any sense. We're not doing that. So his last resort was to go to them and appeal the decision to, um, well, he wanted to dismiss the case on grounds that it wasn't substantive. uh, And that judge said, nah, we're going ahead. So he had one last shot with the Supreme Court to try to get this thing dismissed so it doesn't destroy him. But the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're not even going to listen to it. It doesn't warrant us listening to it, which has got to be troubling to him because he knows he's got three or four Donald Trump suck-ups on the Supreme Court, and even they didn't want to listen to this shit. U.S. District Judge Carl Nichols didn't buy that argument. In his 2021 ruling, he called Lindell's claims inherently improbable and his sources unreliable. The judge also found that Lindell appeared to benefit financially from the lies peddling MyPillow products alongside his election conspiracies. So he wasn't buying his shit. 
In November 2021, for instance, after months of promoting an explosive lawsuit, he said he would file that would overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Lindell instead turned a live stream symposium on the supposed suit into a four-day promotion for his betting. How did this guy ever get to be successful in the fucking first place? Lindell also faces a separate lawsuit from Smartmatic, a different voting machine company that also accused him of defamation. A federal judge last month rejected attempts by Lindell and MyPillow to dismiss the case. The conservative-dominated Supreme Court returned from summer break on Monday, four months after overturning Roe v. Wade with a batch of highly consequential cases on its new docket. So, the Supreme Court said, Mike, you're bullshit. We're not listening to this shit. So Mike is going to have to go on trial for this lawsuit. And this lawsuit is going to be $1.6 billion. Now, what Donald Trump would try to do is settle out of court. (laughs) But what are you going to settle for? A billion? (laughs) It doesn't matter. Whatever they end up getting is going to destroy Mike Lindell. And the fact of the matter is he deserves it. He's one of these people I've talked about before. They should have gotten to a point where they said, you know, I'm not going to ride this train anymore. I'm not going to stick by Donald Trump because it could ruin my life. But there's still a lot of people like Mike Lindell said, fuck it, I'm going to double down and keep doing it. So their lives are going to be destroyed. Their businesses are going to be destroyed. Their futures are going to be destroyed just because they were stubborn. They didn't know when to walk away, and they didn't walk away. They're like the lemmings jumping off the cliff. They just follow one another, and they all go off the cliff, and they die. Now, saying that, there is one person that has said, yeah, now I better back up from this. She's probably too late to avoid trouble. At least one member of former President Donald Trump's legal team has hired her own attorney, and allies are urging another to follow suit, according to the Washington Post. Trump's attorneys, Christina Bob and Evan Corcoran, affirmed to the Justice Department that Trump had handed over all classified records from his Mar-a-Lago residence in response to a May subpoena. But prosecutors said their response was incomplete. After the FBI searched and found more documents at Mar-a-Lago and cited evidence of obstructive conduct in response to the subpoena. Now, Bob has since hired her own lawyer, which is probably a good idea. Florida-based former prosecutor John Laurel and made it known to Trump allies that she's willing to cooperate and be interviewed by the Justice Department, according to the Post. And colleagues have similarly urged Corcoran to hire a criminal defense lawyer because of his response to the subpoena, according to the report. But he has insisted it's not necessary. There's a lemming for you. He's going to get nailed, and he doesn't even fucking realize it. What kind of lawyer is he? So this all stems from, you know, just prior to the search, when uh, the National Archives pulled 15 boxes of top-secret documents out of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Well, when they got them back, the National Archives said, look, man, there's still some missing. We need some more. Then this Corcoran guy wrote a document testifying, an affidavit, if you will, 
testifying and uh, basically sending this under oath that there were no more top-secret documents. Now, Corcoran didn't sign it, but Christina Bob did and sent it off. The trouble is that later they do the search and they find more top-secret documents. So either she was lying or Donald Trump lied to her and she didn't have enough wherewithal to understand that Donald Trump lies all the time and just did what he said to do. So now she's in all kinds of trouble. Asked if she was negotiating to sit for an interview with the DOJ, Bob told the outlet, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Bob signed a document affirming that Trump handed over all documents that are responsive to the subpoena after a diligent search. Corcoran then met with the DOJ officials and made a similar statement. Investigators ultimately found more evidence that were additional documents at Mar-a-Lago and secured a warrant to search the premises. Now, Bob's, uh, uh, Christina Bob has uh, great legal background. She's a former OAN host who helped push Trump's legal challenges following the 2020 election. She's insisted to Trump allies that she believes the document she signed was accurate, according to the Post. But she also told the pro-Trump right-side broadcasting network that she was not acting as Trump's attorney while serving as a custodian of records when responding to the subpoena, according to the report, meaning that the DOJ could compel her testimony more easily than if she were acting as Trump's lawyer at the time. See, if she'd actually been his lawyer, there would be the executive privilege thing. She's given that up. She's saying, fuck it, I'm in trouble. I'll do whatever you want. I think people were a little bit confused, Bob said. I'm on President Trump's legal team. I do work for him on election issues. I was never on the legal team handling this case, just to be clear on that, which is why I came in as a custodian of records, because I wasn't on the team. (laughs) Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Donald Trump, I barely know that guy. I hardly know him. I don't know who he is. I wasn't on the fucking team. Yeah. Well, regardless of whether you were on the team or not, what you did is fucking illegal. Corcoran, who is referenced as Trump's attorney in court documents, has also been counseled by colleagues to lawyer up, according to the report. Trump hired Corcoran, who recently returned to practicing law in April with no vetting after a single conference call while he was representing former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, who was convicted of contempt of Congress earlier this year. So Donald Trump hires a lawyer that represented Steve Bannon, who lost the fucking case. Oh, that's a good move. Christina Bob and Evan Corcoran need their own criminal lawyers, former DOJ Inspector General Michael Bromwich tweeted, citing their multiple misrepresentations to the DOJ. So Donald Trump has a problem. This Christina Bob is going to give them everything they want because she knows her, if she doesn't, her life is essentially over. The problem she has with signing this document saying there are more, or are no more top secret documents will get her in trouble. But it's, it's not a huge crime, not compared to Donald Trump. So it would be very easy to say, look, we're going to let you off the hook on this one. But you got to give us all the shit, <clears throat> which she will no doubt do. I mean, is she going to end her life and her career for Donald Trump? 
I would hope at this point she's learned a fucking lesson. Now, Donald Trump, he is at a position where he's just flailing. He doesn't know what the fuck to do. None of his normal strategies are working, so he's saying and doing crazy shit. And here's something he's doing that really isn't going to work to his benefit at all because he's going to lose and and it's really not going to help his other problems. But he feels like he has to do something. <clears throat> so former President Donald Trump has sued, now sued, CNN in federal court in Florida for defamation. In the lawsuit filed Monday, Trump's attorneys claim CNN has sought to use its massive influence purportedly as a trusted news source to defame the plaintiff in the minds of its viewers and readers for the purpose of defeating him politically, culminating in CNN claiming credit for getting Trump out in 2020's presidential election. Well, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? He's complaining about a news agency, I'll put that in quotes now in their current state, that uh, he, they defamed him because what did they do? They Well, they basically told the truth, and he's upset that it hurt his chances to win in 2020. He's upset about people telling the truth about him. But wasn't it Fox News who purported this ridiculous theory that the Sandy Hook parents were all crisis actors? Didn't they jump on board with those fucking people? Yeah, they did, but he didn't seem to have a problem with that. Well, now that's coming apart. CNN, or not CNN, but Fox News has had to give up all their documentation, and Fox News is in a world of trouble. The situation with CNN, it's not going anywhere. It's like every one of Donald Trump's other lawsuits. It goes nowhere. The former president is seeking $475 million in punitive damages, according to the lawsuit. Now, Trump announced his intent to sue the network earlier this summer, saying in a statement he would also be commencing actions against other media outlets who have defamed me and defrauded the public regarding the overwhelming evidence of fraud throughout the 2020 election. But it was true. So he's going to have a problem with that. The former president's attorney alleged in the filing that CNN has undertaken a smear campaign to malign the plaintiff with a barrage of negative associations and innuendos, broadcasting commentary that he is like a cult leader, a Russian lackey, a dog whistler to white supremacist and racist. Yeah, but that's all true. It also cited anchors, personalities, and pundits on CNN using the term the big lie, God forbid, to refer to Trump repeated false statements about the 2020 election and voter fraud as evidence of the outlet attempting to associate him with Adolf Hitler. So let me get this straight. You're suing these people because they had the audacity of telling the truth about you. And and here's the weird thing. Now they've got a new owner, a new uh, a new executive, and now they seem to be going to the right. So you're suing a company that's now headed toward your way. He's just trying to create chaos. He's just trying to create a distraction. And this is not going to work. This won't even go to fucking court. In order to prove defamation, public officials and other public figures must prove journalists acted with actual malice or reckless disregard for the truth in their reporting. 
a high legal bar to clear given First Amendment protections granted to the free press under the Constitution. The New York Times, for example, has not lost a defamation case in more than 50 years. See, that's the thing. If you are a public figure, virtually anybody can say anything they fucking want about you. That's why we have these tabloids and these these dirt pages. You can say anything because in order to actually sue somebody, you have to prove that it costs you something in terms of reputation and money, jobs, whatever. Now, how is Donald Trump going to prove that? The general public voted him out of office. And all CNN is, did was tell the truth. CNN is a frequent foil of Trump, his followers and allies, as well as conservatives more generally. In 2020, the network settled a $275 million lawsuit brought by a high school student in Kentucky who was at the center of a viral video controversy and became a lightning rod for critics of mainstream media. Trump's campaign also sued the New York Times in 2019 over an op-ed suggesting a quid pro quo with the Russian officials. The latest lawsuit from the former president comes amid big changes at CNN, as I mentioned, which was recently sold to media conglomerate Discovery. CNN's new president, Chris Licht, has made several changes to the network's programming and personnel, scrapping its Sunday show focused on media affairs and telling staff at the network he would like to see a renewed commitment to journalism over punditry and speculation. Licht reportedly told network anchors in a meeting earlier this year that they should rein in the use of the phrase, the big lie, when referring to Trump's election claims, worrying it was too partisan. Now, of course, the network declined to comment on this. It's funny that they would suggest, we want to be more journalistic, (laughs) but just don't tell the truth. That is the exact opposite of journalism. So this idea that this new president and this new owner comes in and they want to make it more journalistic is ridiculous. What they want to do is go more to the right. They see Fox failing and they see an opportunity of possibly picking up um, some of those viewers. It's all about money. It's not about news. It's not about truth. It's not about fact. That is the problem with the media today. Everything you watch is slanted one way or another. Everybody gets different stories. And because we all get different stories, that's where the divisiveness comes in. That's... (laughs) It's frustrating to watch. I mean, I do what I do here on the Rational Boomer podcast, and anytime I see a story, I have to go about three or four sources before I get a real understanding of what's true or get all the facts. Because a lot of times, like MSNBC or CNN, uh, they wouldn't tell you something that's not true. They just don't give you all the facts, and they paint a different picture of what the story is about. So, anyhow. Last thing we're going to talk about is that uh, genius Herschel Walker, who's uh, running against Warnock for Senate in Georgia. Now, this guy is an absolute idiot. Now, 
he has a son, a 23-year-old son, Christian Walker, who's a big TikTok influencer. He's a fucking goofball, if you ask me. And uh, he's always supported his dad. But then his dad comes out to talk about family values and all these sorts of things. And then we hear stories of how he's had kids with a bunch of different women that that uh, <clears throat> he doesn't see or doesn't get involved with parenting. Polar opposite of what he's claiming he is is, is ridiculous. Now, Christian Walker introduced his father at one of his kids one of the candidate's earliest fundraisers at Mar-a-Lago, the Florida residence of Donald Trump, Herschel, who says he opposes abortion with no exceptions for rape, incest, or life of the mother. (laughs) But something just came out. Something came out, and there are some receipts to us. A former girlfriend says he paid for her to have an abortion and also paid her a little stipend of $700 to carry her over and also sent her a little get well card. Yeah, you can trust what he has to say. Well, now Christian Walker, who was supporting his dad, is now against his dad. Oh, the fucking drama. I love Republican drama. Every family member of Herschel Walker's asked him not to run for office because we all knew some of his past, every single one. He decided to give us the middle finger and air out all his dirty laundry in public while simultaneously lying about it. I'm done. That comes from Christian Walker, his son. He tweeted that out. He also uh, went on to say, I know my mom and I would really appreciate if my father, Herschel Walker, stopped lying and making a mockery of us. You're not a family man. When you left us to bang a bunch of women and threaten to kill us and had us move over six times in six months running from your violence. I don't care about someone who has a bad past and takes accountability, but how dare you lie and act as though you're some moral Christian upright man. You've lived a life of destroying other people's lives. How dare you? Well, the worm turned there, didn't it? Herschel Walker tweeted shortly after his son's comments, I love my son, no matter what. Yeah, you're not denying the shit either, are you? Walker, a former football grade at the University of Georgia, has acknowledged struggling with mental illness. Oh, no shit. Amid scrutiny about whether past allegations of violent behavior could sink his Senate bid. Walker's campaign has been marred by revelations that he inflated or made false statements about his past, including how many children he has, that he was an FBI agent, all this kind of shit. (laughs) It's fucking amazing. Walker was backed by Donald Trump, a Trump endorsee, and a Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, who has admitted that the candidate quality issues could cost Republicans the Senate in the uh, next month's midterms. Walker's race against Democrat uh, Senator Raphael Warnock, which the Cook Political Report rates as a toss-up, is viewed as one of the Republicans' best pickup opportunities of the Senate. Now, I don't know for the life of me how this can possibly be a toss-up. Herschel Walker has to be one of the dumbest human beings I've ever seen. Does he have mental issues? Well, I would be surprised if he doesn't. You know, you hold a gun to your child's mother's head, 
you might have some issues. You might have some issues you want to address, and he hasn't done that. So we can only presume he's emotionally unstable, emotionally fragile. And isn't that who we want in the U.S. Senate? Isn't that who we need in the U.S. Senate? I know they say it's a toss-up. But I question polls these days, even the polls that suggest Democrats are ahead. I think the polls will take a back seat to the ultimate turnout of these elections. I think people are fearful of what might happen if the Republicans take over. And much like we saw in 2020 when an unprecedented amount of people came out and voted for Joe Biden, because they were afraid of Donald Trump. I think we're going to see something akin to that in the midterms. Maybe not as big as what we saw in 2020, but far bigger than we're used to seeing in the midterms. And that will bode well for the Democrats. I think the independents have sided with the Democrats. They want no part of the crazy fucks. I think there's a faction of Republicans. I don't know what kind of percentage, but it doesn't have to be a lot to win the elections. There's a certain amount of Republicans say, yeah, I cannot buy into that bullshit. And there's a lot of good people in Georgia, a lot of smart people in Georgia. And in spite of the fact you might be Republican, I can't imagine anybody's going to buy in to Herschel Walker with half a fucking brain. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. We are going to wrap up the Rational Boomer podcast. I hope you have a great day. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.